Uh, my name is Dennis Emanuel. Um, I work for SSNC Alps. Uh, I not only head up our closed end fund uh, uh, work, uh, I'm also uh, head of oversight for all of our active products. Now, what we're going to try to do with this panel here is talk about an area which I'm guessing many of you don't um, know too much about or certainly don't have too much access to, uh, is private credit. Um, trust me when I say it is an incredibly growing uh, part of the fixed income market. Billions upon billions go into uh, this area every year. Pensions, endowments are adding more exposure to this on a yearly basis. You see a lot of articles, whether it's Barron's, uh, Wall Street Journal. Uh, if you have access to Bloomberg, you just put in a news story for private debt and you will see tons of stories about the growth of this area. So what we'd like to do is explain to you what it is, the benefits of it, how it differs from the public markets, and why we think you should have it in your portfolio. And more importantly, this is not for just institutions and high net wealth anymore. It is available to retail. We're going to show you, you know, how you can access it. So before we do all of this, let's just have the panel introduce themselves, what their roles are, and, and a little bit about their company. So Chris. Perfect. Thanks, Dennis. Uh, Chris Flynn. I'm the CEO of THL Credit Advisors. We're an uh, alternative asset uh, manager focused on uh, fixed income or private credit. We manage approximately uh, $17 billion. We have offices in uh, Boston, New York, Chicago, Dallas, and Los Angeles. Hi, I'm Mike Krems, a managing director with Tory Cove Capital Partners. We are an advisor to institutional investors primarily in the private market space, including private credit, and I lead our private credit practice. I'm uh, Pete Kaliotis with Callan. I'm executive vice president, head of alternatives consulting, and that includes private credit, private equity, and hedge funds. I'm based in New York, but the firm's based in San Francisco, and we have offices across the country. Uh, as far as Callan, we're the largest independent investment consulting firm, so about two trillion uh, over uh, over two trillion under advisement across 400 clients. Most of our clients are institutional investors, but we do have a group called IAG, uh, which uh, works with uh, family offices and uh, RIAs to provide consulting services to that market. Thanks, gentlemen. All right, so let's start off. Um, I'm going to direct this first one to Mike. Um, explain to us, what is private credit? How does it differ, really, from the public bond markets? Sure. Um, well, private credit, it's fairly on the nose, but let me uh, break down the two parts a little bit. Uh, private, what does that mean? Where is the line drawn? Um, what it really means is limited market distribution. Think about the lender and the borrower having a direct conversation and directly originated loans. That's really the heart of the market, and it, it really revolves around corporate debt for the most part. Uh, there is a focus on private equity firms and their investment activities and lending to them, although in no way is that exclusive for private credit, but we do see a lot of activity in that space. And th there are some club deals where two or three lenders will get together to underwrite a loan, uh, but what, what is it not? It is not QCIP uh, securities. Uh, and there is no broad syndication. That is the, the market space that defines private credit. Um, generally, these are senior secured loans, so getting into the credit aspect of it. And 
measured as a multiple of EBITDA, which is often the language that, that uh, is used to define these loans, it's generally from kind of zero multiples of EBITDA through about four. That's the senior secured space, although we've seen definitions of stretch senior and unitronch, which are still senior secured securities, but they go a little bit deeper in the capital structure. Um, that is really the heart of the, the uh, the private credit markets or direct lending markets. Additionally, however, real estate credit is often in the definition of private credit, and some investors who have a, a bit broader definition will include credit-like return profiles, so aviation, leasing, or sometimes even CLOs and CMBS securities, uh, which are not often broadly syndicated, or, or, and, and some even that have a little bit wider distribution. So it, maybe it's not unexpected, but the private credit markets have uh, been able to garner a lot of attention, a lot of capital has been raised in the space, and so some strategies are contorting themselves to fit within that allocation. We have seen a trend towards increased allocations in the space, and that, that leads to uh, a want to be included. Um, one other thing to distinguish uh, a quality which I, I think does not define the space is leverage. Uh, we see strategies that include leverage. Uh, we see the, those same assets and structures which do not include leverage. So while you can find a wide variety of leverage options, I would not consider that a defining characteristic of the space. Think more of direct conversations between the lender and the borrower as the defining quality of the space. Thank you. Uh, Pete, I, I alluded to earlier that a lot of institutions are putting billions of dollars into this. But who is your typical investor in private credit? So um, that's correct. Institutions comprise the majority of the private credit assets. Um, you know, I, my estimate would be between 80 and 90% of assets are, are held by institutions. And when you look at who's interested in private credit, it's a, it's a variety. It's insurance companies um, because the volatility of, of valuations is relatively low, so they get better regulatory treatment. Pension funds that want the income uh, but also don't want the uh, variability and also reinvestment risk um, that shorter duration bonds carry with them. So we're talking about, you know, three to five year loans with very attractive yields. So it can really serve a, a useful purpose in an asset allocation where when you're looking at a two, two and a half percent kind of yield and more kind of investment grade space, on the private credit space, you're looking at like a six to eight percent kind of yield or better. Uh, so when you're looking at, you know, where can we deploy capital where we get some income, but also some downside protection, private credit really kind of serves a useful purpose there. Uh, and then uh, other than that, you know, when we look at endowments and foundations, they have not typically been big investors in private credit, mainly because just the returns aren't as attractive for a private vehicle as um, what they see in, let's say, private equity, private real estate, and the like. Uh, and then on the retail side, um, we do see uh, a healthy participation by retail investors and family office uh, investors, but mainly in a couple of different areas, one being BDCs. The earlier panel kind of went into a lot of detail about the BDC space, and we'll talk about this a little bit later today in this panel, and then also um, interval funds, which we think is an increasingly attractive place to look for with respect to getting exposure to private credit, but in a way that uh, kind of smaller investors can access. Uh, in terms of just sizes, you know, when we look at private credit broadly, 750 to a trillion dollars, 750 billion to a trillion dollars, that's sort of the size of the aggregate private credit market. 
Um, but again, most of that is in uh, commingled funds or separate accounts managed by you know the THLs of the world working with institutional investors. Thank you. Chris, um, why private debt over the public markets? I mean, we, we, I, we've heard what, uh, what Mike said, uh, what Pete said. I, I mean, I can get exposure to senior secured in a closing fund. Uh, but what, what are the differences here? What's the benefits, really? Sure. No, I appreciate the question. Um, if you think about the benefit of, of private credit or, or access to um, you know, private capital versus public, it, it's just that. It's, it's access to proprietary deal flow. If you look at uh, the yield profile that we're able to generate in this you know, private market that's described, there's a lot of institutions that would like to, to buy that. The problem is it's not for sale. You have to create it, and for you to be created, it's got to be part of either a firm like myself or someone else who has you know, 96 employees, five different offices, $17 billion of, of capital under management. There's a very, very large barrier to entry because the execution of creating this type of product is is high. So if you think about it from a statistics standpoint, the last institutional fund that we raised was a little over five or six hundred million dollars. Our weighted average spread is about LIBOR 700, or about nine and a half percent current floating rate, so easily north of 10 percent on uh, when you include fees. And if you comp that versus uh, an on-the-run ETF or a high-yield bond fund, the yield profile is easily 200 to 300 basis points wide. So that's the first part that makes sense. The second part is we're building out these portfolios with substantially less leverage and much more downside protection. Average leverage in our portfolio, four to four and a half. Average leverage in the high yield bond portfolio, five and a half to seven, depending on the sector. So from us, if you can couple high current coupon, downside protection, and minimal volatility, it should be an asset class that attracts capital. What we've seen in the development of that is how do you design the right product uh, for the constituents? Institutions have, have led the charge into this, and I think now is it's becoming more of a, uh, a core allocation. I think it makes sense for it to expand into you know, more of a retail distribution channel as you design better funds for it. Is it fair to say lower volatility, um, lower leverage, is this less risky than similar corporate debt? And, and listen, I'll talk my own book for a second. And in my opinion, it is because we have better control, we have better structure, we have better diligence. Um, you know, it's not perfect. It, there's nothing perfect. Uh, there's a perception of liquidity, I say, in the broader market. And I say perception now. I, I, I would think most people in the room today would say liquidity in the broader market. If you see a storm coming, hey, I'm, I'm going to sell and move out of my, my positions prior to, uh, to that happening. I think that's very, very difficult in the, in the quote unquote on the run market. In our market, it's a buy-and-hold strategy. You've got the exposure. You've got to work the relationship. I feel like the amount of structure, the senior secured nature of the asset class will, uh, will, will drive a, a better risk-adjusted return or a lower loss given default, if you will. Mike, uh, you want to add anything? Or? Yeah. Uh, thinking back to the last downturn in late 2008, early 2009, Leveraged loans traded, it, it was what, like a six standard deviation event? I mean, they, they traded down. Why? Not because the credits were necessarily that stressed, but because they were the most liquid thing in many people's portfolios. And that pricing signal created problems for some investors, and it caused them to reweight their exposure. 
I mean, this isn't a common definition of risk, but I view it as a risk if you have price that deviates that meaningfully from your true kind of expected return on, based on fundamental credit analysis. So one advantage the private credit markets have is it eliminates that noise from selling, um, especially when that creates a, a signal which isn't real. Um, and, and so there, there's really two components to risk. There's fundamental credit loss risk, and then there's, there's price volatility. And price volatility can have as much to do with fund flows as anything else. And so I think it really isolates the credit risk while minimizing the, the fund flow risk. Uh, and, and I know for many of our clients, that lets them focus on core fundamentals of credit, uh, which I think leads to better decision making. One point I'd add, if you don't mind, Dennis, and I think Go for it. Mike's comment, um, if you think about the last downturn, the private debt market as it sits today, it's always kind of existed, but it's been substantially smaller, much more focused on, you know, second lien, mezzanine, higher, higher yielding, higher risk assets. But one of the cause and effects of the last downturn was substantially increased regulation as it relates to commercial bank activity and how how they finance true middle market businesses. So if you think about private credit size of the issuer is one. These these are smaller companies, you know, ten to a hundred million dollars in EBITDA on average. Prior to the downturn, most of that senior secured exposure was held on a on a bank's balance sheet. It wasn't held in the institutional market. Now it's really held in private capital balance sheets and we're structured substantially different. We're not levered ten times. Um, we don't have substantial uh, potential calls on our, our capital, so we have a lot more flexibility to weather a downturn and manage our control our own destiny than you than you see in the other markets. And it's it's really the advent of the banks leaving and the institutional market or the institutional investors such as myself moving in that are creating this 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 market that, quite frankly, as it's defined today, didn't exist in 2009. And and it's one of the reasons why I think so much institutional capital is coming in. Because if you look at the risk profile of what a commercial bank was getting paid on a similar portfolio, they may have been getting paid LIBOR 300 or 400 for taking similar risk. We're now getting paid LIBOR 500 to 700 for the exact same risk, in my opinion. Yet, our cost of capital, if you are, our return expectations are higher. We just have to pass those on to the issuers because they don't have an alternative. So, because uh, you, you hit into a question I wanted, what was the catalyst? And it was the, the, the crash there, uh, financial crisis, and increased regulation banks exiting the market, do you see the banks ever coming back in? Any of you? Um. And I'll, I'll just comment on that. Um, one thing that we've seen uh, through this period is that um, the private credit space is a very relationship-driven area. And so once um, people left the banks after the GFC and went on, many of them in the private credit world, uh, those relationships with borrowers kind of ma were maintained, you know, and so um, unless you have people that have gone to the private credit world are willing to go back to a bank, given all the, regula the regulation that's in that industry, especially regulation re with regard to compensation, um, which I think is unlikely to happen, unless that happens, then the banks are going to have a hard time uh, getting in back into uh, the kind of direct lending landscape, let's say, the private credit landscape. So um, we think that those relationships with non-bank lenders are going to 
continue and it's going to continue to grow, um, we don't see the banks as being a huge threat uh, to that business. Uh, we have seen assets in um, direct lending, as an example, you know, grow substantially in the past few years, but most of that's from other non-bank lenders or prior private equity investors entering the space with credit products as opposed to banks entering the space. If, if you think about banks from a competitive standpoint, I agree with everything Pete just said. The, the, you can't compete with a bank on price because they have a substantially lower cost of funding. But as an investor, if you're winning on price, that's like the least reason why you want to win. Um, so if a bank wants to come back in, they can try to win and, and with, with price. But the fact is, attracting the talent and the team is extremely difficult. Um, I don't know how many people here are from Chicago. I, I went through an analyst training program at American National Bank. It, it doesn't exist anymore. It's been acquired, I think, five times. But the, uh, those programs just don't exist anymore in banks. Banks aren't teaching you know, junior analysts how to, how to go out and proactively lend money. It's expensive. And they take losses. And every time they take a loss, the regulators come down and hit them. So it's pretty hard to kind of just reinvent that infrastructure to come back in and unseat uh, um, you know, a, a, a new force, if you will, in that space. Hey guys, let, let, let's talk about it, because Mike, you had mentioned uh, about fund flows. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how much money recently has been coming in, and then what is the impact of so much money coming into the marketplace? The, there's a lot. I mean, this is a fundamental structural change. The historical uh, channels for providing capital to middle market companies, lower middle market companies has changed and, and banks have stepped back and we saw a vacuum and we've, we're watching private capital formation uh, fill that void. So uh, the numbers vary. It's certainly in the, the, um, in, in the high billion numbers, but it, it's a trillion dollar market perhaps. I mean, it, it really uh, it is large. Um, so it, it's hard to measure exactly where supply and demand are matching up. You almost need to look at um, pricing to get an indication of that. And one of the things we see is that it's not just about interest rate. When a lender is providing a loan, there are lots of elements that are being negotiated, certainly interest rates. Uh, but there's also covenants, there's also flexibility to do things uh, like delayed draw term loans. If uh, let, let's take a private equity firm as as the borrower uh, through one of its companies, if they want to pursue an M&A strategy, they want flexibility to be able to increase debt over time or to borrow more to finance acquisition. So that flexibility, together with interest rate, together with other dynamics of the deal, is the complete package. So. Well, we've seen the supply of capital in the private credit markets increase, and you would think, just based on Economics 101, that would lead to a decrease in prices. Um, you really need to think of price in quotes and, and broadly defined. And what we've observed is maybe a little bit of pressure on interest rates, but more uh, lenders have been willing, they've been holding the line on, on cash interest rates for the most part, and have been willing to negotiate around the flexibility, and maybe that's covenants, or maybe that's uh, the allowance of dividends or M&A activity, but those are the dynamics we've seen. So we're, we're, we watch that closely. We're very tuned in to cash interest and how that compares to public market options, but so far what we've seen is um, the the inflow of capital doesn't seem to be at such a level that it's eroded that financial incentive uh, to put capital to work in the private markets. And one additional factor, 
while we've seen money flow into the space, we've seen product formation happen at probably an even faster rate. And what that's led to is competition for terms, and we, we've generally seen the terms become more favorable for investors, whether that's um, the rate of management fees or the structure of them. Um, so net-net, I think the investors are seeing uh, more attractive terms um, in connection with, uh, with the dynamics of the market. So that's an important uh, factor that also comes into play. Maybe just one thing I'd add, and it's, it's, I think it's sometimes forgotten. If you think through how a traditional private fund is structured, we'll, we'll get paid a management fee, and then we'll have what's considered a carry, like an incentive fee based over a minimum return. And some of that pricing dynamic or discipline that Mike was referencing is a function of that structure. If, if my private fund has an 8% pref, or I've got to return an 8% to my LP before I start taking the carry or the incentive fee, you could imagine magically that we price most of our stuff north of 8% because I don't want to work for free. Um, so as long as there's maintains a discipline in how the, how the pref return is structured by the institutional investors, and, and they'll vary, you'll see some strategies, there'll be a six, some will be an eight, but they're in that range. It's, it's not a coincidence, in my opinion, that most of the weighted average spreads are, you know, about 100 basis points wider your pref is, and that's what enables the managers to drive, drive some form of a carry return over and above the management fee. So much more of a disciplined approach, and it's not necessarily driven by the technical winds of, hey, retail funds are in, retail funds are out, and you can see the markets move up and down. It's, uh, in, in fact, there's probably zero to no correlation there whatsoever. And, and what happens and how we price our deals. If, if you guys look at the broader market, Q4, Q1, um, had some volatility, syndicated loans that had gapped out in pricing, our, our pricing didn't move at all. I would like to have gotten higher, just, it just didn't because that's, that's not what's driving it. So, you know, both of you have mentioned uh, your structure, covenants, uh, uh, terms. Um, do you have more say? Do you have more leverage, so to speak, in, in constructing these deals than you would say in a similar type deal in the public markets, as far as covenants go? And I mean, from my perspective, you, we create this loan, um, so we're, we're structuring it. Now, I have competition that's also trying to create a loan, so I don't want to imply that we're driving 100% of the terms because private equity sponsors are efficient users of, of, of capital, but we're creating the the box and under the terms of which we'll lend and, and they'll come in or they won't. And the syndicated are more on the run or the non-proprietary deal flow. It's, do you want to buy the structure, yes or no? And you really have no say whatsoever. So there is a lot of control that we have up front. We don't always win the day because, like I said, we're 17 billion of a, of a much larger market. I'm, I'm feeling much smaller now after hearing some of the other statistics from my colleagues. But the, uh, um, the, uh, the, the competition, for the most part, is, is, I'd say, much more rational in our market than it is in, in sometimes what you see in some of the, the bull markets of the, uh, the on-the-run market. But that is one of the risks that we see. We were talking before about risk uh, it, you know, relative to the, to the public space. And we definitely are seeing more covenant life terms and you know, earnings adjustments, things like that, in um, the middle market, much more so than we had in the past. And so before, those were more kind of the province of you know, syndicated loans, especially kind of M&A related activity. And now we're seeing kind of in the 50 million EBITDA kind of neighborhood or below with covenant like terms being much more prevalent. So definitely the competition and a lot of this kind of entry of non-bank lenders into the space, I think, is just encouraging easing of, of credit conditions and credit terms in, in these agreements. Hey, Pete, let's let's stick with you here. Let, let's 
this, we don't want everyone to think this is a risk-free asset class, okay? There are risks. <laughs> What would you say are some of the primary risks, whether it's underwriting standards, regulatory, future regulatory concerns, I would think, being that this was kind of, I don't want to say born, but really sprung out of the financial crisis, really haven't seen a big credit downturn. What would you say are the primary risks? We'll start with you, and I'd like all of your opinions on it. Sure. Um, so on the, on the haven't been tested kind of issue, um, that's correct that the, the private credit market as it is today in terms of the size and the number of uh, participants, you know, is much different than was the case pre-GFC. You know, the GFC really kind of created a lot of the opportunity that we're seeing today. It used to be more kind of mezzanine was, you know, taking, was kind of providing these kinds of loans that direct lenders are providing today. Um, so that's definitely changed, and so there has been um, kind of a, a limited amount of uh, examples of the market testing these loans. But you can look, though, at past performance of not just high yield and broadly syndicated loans, because those have been around for a long time, and there's indexes that you can look at, but also there's indexes that track the direct lending space um, that have been kind of back-tested, or not really back-tested, but sort of, you know, created using loans that were originated well before the GFC to look at, okay, how have these strategies compared to high yield and, and bank loans? And I'd say they've actually held up pretty well, you know, so if you look at during the kind of 2008 environment, um, you know, the realized losses for middle market is much lower than what we saw on the syndicated side, and on the high yield side. So if you're looking at sort of like a, a rank order of, you know, volatility, volatility and risk, uh, at least with respect to valuations, you'd say kind of high yield, highest, syndicated bank loans second, and then uh, the middle market third, you know, in that ranking. So that, but that is still a risk. Um, second risk, and we were talking before about, you know, coming in, so credit conditions are have been easing for a number of years in the middle market space, and so that's something to definitely keep an eye on. You know, the good thing is it's hard to default, you know, so when it comes to having a realized loss, you know, that gets harder and harder to, to you know, have happen. But the downside is the recoveries are commensurately less also. So if you do have a default, there ain't going to be much left, sorry, uh, there's not going to be much left uh, to, uh, to, to collect on, you know, uh, for what's left uh, post-default. So that's, that's a concern that um, the actual realized default rate is papering over, you know, what we would expect to see really kind of during a downturn. And then the other is, of course, illiquidity. You know, you can't rebalance, you can't sell out of this stuff. Um, so, you know, if you're in need of liquidity during a downturn, you're going to have to turn to other areas. You know, Mike um, gave a good example about, well, the reason why a lot of the bank loans sold off so dramatically was because that was a source of funds. Uh, in the, in the uh, private credit space, you're not going to be able to get out of your positions and you might be overweighted relative to where you want to be. So that's, to me, in terms of looking at risks, that's you know, one of the biggest risks. And the last thing I'll mention is just the size of borrowers. You know, this industry exists because it's focused on borrowers that otherwise wouldn't be able to tap into the public markets. You know, so uh, we're looking at, you know, 10 to $100 million annual EBITDA kind of range for these borrowers. And so that size um, does have with it commensurately higher yield. You know, you're getting compensated for lending to smaller borrowers, you know, in the private credit space. But that is a risk in terms of the uh, nature of the borrowers that are active. Mike, what would you say to, what would you think the biggest risk is in this marketplace? Yeah, I, I think there's lots of risks we can identify. And then there's this big one in the center, which Pete touched upon, which is core credit risk. It's 
Think about you making a loan to a friend. The question is, will they pay you back? And there are a couple uh, elements that drive that. One is their fundamental ability to. Uh, and I think a good credit manager is going to be well-trained and, and hopefully successful at picking those companies which are durable even during a downturn and in a position through cash flow to, to pay you. Uh, there's also another element which is the, the capital markets. At the time the loan comes due, are they supportive of refinancing that loan? And uh, I think one of the protections here, given that a lot of activity is supporting private equity investments, in most cases, the leverage uh, is at a fairly reasonable level. And for the, if the company, if nothing has changed fundamentally, and it's a question of are the capital market supportive, there's another element. It's not just is the loan market there to step in, but also is the private equity buyer there to step in and support the company. And if they paid, 10 times EBITDA for a business that has four times or five times leverage on it, are they really going to let that business go and get wiped out in their equity check? So there's, there's a couple uh, protections in, in your borrower uh, base there. And this, this is uh, maybe not a risk, but, but a realistic problem. When we talk to lenders in the space, part of what is hard for them is money coming back too quickly, them getting refinanced out of their positions and having to go back out there and, and recompete to deploy the capital. So that's a, that's a realistic um, current market issue that has to be addressed. Uh, I don't know if it's a fundamental risk for investors from a credit point of view, but it is in terms of a capital deployment issue. Uh, you obviously don't want to be sitting there in cash, so you need to make sure a manager has robust deal flow so that when a loan does get prepaid or, or even just repaid at maturity, they can go out and, and redeploy that capital. Uh, Chris, I'm guessing you're going to agree that credit the credit cycle is probably your biggest risk. I, I, if it's not, then otherwise I'm going to ask you a different question. <laughs> Feel free. We've talked about billions and, you know, about a trillion dollar market, billions going into this thing. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that, that alone kind of validates it as a legitimate asset class. But what I want to ask you is traditionally ultra high net wealth uh, investors, institutions, pensions, that, what about the retail investor? Do you think this is appropriate for a retail investor? I do, and I think the reason, if you think through, listen, I, I don't know all your clients, but for some manner, shape, or form of your portfolio, having something that has given you, you know, consistent income with minimal volatility is pretty attractive. And where we've started to attract capital, again, it started on the institutional side, but as the market's matured, when you can go in and say, we can, we can generate a 2 to 2.5% two quarterly distribution with minimal volatility to NAV. I'm not going to say there's no volatility to NAV, but there is, it's not as much as you'd see, because for the most part, we control um, our own destiny as it relates to these investments. That seems to be fairly compelling, and that's what's starting a lot of these conversations of, how do I access that? Does that mean I should allocate 100% to it? I'd love that, but uh, I don't expect it. Um, but the fact is, you should have some manner, shape, or form where you can come in and, and find a much higher yielding part of the uh, part of the investment scheme that pays a, uh, a, a much higher yield without without the same uh, you know downside associated with uh, technical pressure. Now we I, I can always ask a lot more questions here, but I want to leave time for all of you. So anyone, any questions for our panel here? Yes, right here. So, so 
so the question the best vehicle was for investing for a, uh, for if you have a retail investor how liquid is it and what's the worst vehicle for a retail investor to, to be investing in what's, okay. sort of like their next door neighbor you know having some deal. sure sure there's a lot of ways to get into it. you can go to a private fund but the cost to entry is very very high and there's enormous lockup periods Really, the ways you would do it, and anyone chime in, uh, you could do a traditional closing fund. There's some out there will get you a small pocket of uh, private credit. There was one that was mentioned earlier, a tortoise fund. They have a lot of exposure there. Uh, ETFs, you're really going to get it indirectly because they're going to be buying BDCs and maybe a closing fund that has some exposure. Uh, so really, the way to do it, I would say, is interval funds. Now, I don't know if you guys uh, have any different opinion on that. Yeah, I... Maybe go ahead, Pete. Like, uh, so, okay. So, um, for me, there's two kind of primary ways of getting exposure as a retail investor. The first is BDCs, which we talked about earlier. Those are traded daily. Um, you have, uh, you know, mark to markets daily. Prices are easily available. So that's you know, the problem with BDCs from a retail investor standpoint is the fees, you know, are, are fairly high. You know, so, that, so that's kind of the issue. That's sort of the, you know, cost of doing business to get exposure to that higher yield is we're talking about, you know, 3%-ish kind of overall fees. And then on the uh, interval fund side, so these are funds where you can have, you know, daily subscriptions as a retail investor, and different funds have different minimum investments. And then you can have typically quarterly liquidity. So each fund has a certain percentage by which um, it offers repurchases. Uh, so usually 5% per quarter is kind of the market standard. And so if you have a re an interval fund that's large enough, you as a single investor in that fund can take all your money out within a quarter as long as you don't have 5% of remaining assets that wants liquidity. It's fund level gate. Think of it, yeah, uh, and and typically five percent per quarter is kind of the standard terms, you know. And interval funds, definitely not as many out there as there are BDCs that are looking at private credit. Um, there's a, a couple that are more focused on sort of the middle market direct lending space that we've been talking about here. Most interval funds are still kind of reinsurance or uh, CLO oriented on the credit side. Uh, or high yield and bank loan oriented, so very few, but it's a growing category that are focused on middle market direct lending. It, yeah, and it, it is growing, and there's a lot, if you look at the pipeline of registrations, a lot in the private credit space. I'm sorry, man. I'll, I'll add. Is that directed to me? Um, yeah, we're, we're looking at a variety of options. An integral fund would be on the table for us, absolutely. We think it's yeah. attractive. And um, I'll just expand a little bit on, on those comments. BDCs are great. They're liquid. You can trade them daily. The challenge is that some BDCs trade close to book value. Some trade well below book value, and that volatility um, of, as measured as a percentage of book value can be a, a challenge for investors. And uh, when you want liquidity, uh, sometimes if it's a depressed market, it, the pricing can be well below book value. The, the interval fund offers one advantage uh, relative to that, which is when you do redeem your capital, it's always at the net asset value of the portfolio. So by definition, you're getting out at, at book value. So the, the possibility of a discount 
uh, largely goes away in that structure. The, the trade-off is that there's a managed exit process defined as that 20% per year or 5% per quarter. Um, but in evaluating, does this make sense in a portfolio, if, if fixed income makes sense, and if you have uh, at least a few years before you need the capital back, then you can capture a return premium uh, by entering into the, the private markets. And an interval fund um, does lock your money up for some period of time because you do have these withdrawal gates, but you uh, get your money back at, at uh, book value or NAV, which is a real plus. And It no, depends on each fund. I mean, yeah. some funds may have, uh, you know, you have to maintain, you have to be in there for one year uh, or 12 months, otherwise, if that's what you're referring to, yeah. there might be an early redemption fee. You have, it, it's different for every single fund. But, and, you, and your question yeah. about kind of what the... Yeah, it, it, that's, that's a very interesting strategy to apply to interval funds, uh, just so you have, yeah, the, the cascading distributions. Right. <laughs> And, yeah. I think we had another question just before because we're running out of time here. Did we have another question in the back there? Yes, sir. Yeah, can private uh, credit funds be used as collateral for, for banks or margin for a securities firm? Um, We'd like to try that one. <laughs> well, I'll answer the question from my, how we manage our funds. Um, some of our funds have leverage, but that's disclosed to the shareholder to the extent it's done, and the only assets that are pledged are inside of that vehicle. What I own at the house, the GP, we, we can't pledge any, any collateral associated with any of the capital that we manage with a third party to secure debt for, for us. I think if that was the question. Let's say an individual, a retail customer, invests in your funds. Can that part be used as collateral if he needs to loan money from the bank? Could he pledge this yeah. loan? His holding Can of he pledge of his fund? part of the investment to the bank? I'm going to put my lawyer hat on and say, I don't know. Uh, I doubt it. Because, listen, there's no liquidity. If, let's say your bank forecloses, I mean, I am a lender. If I foreclosed on your investment in my fund and the bank came and said, I want my money back, I'd say, sorry, you're locked up for five years or whatever the terms are of my fund. He can't come in and, and dictate. He's going to be obligated under the, under the terms of the subscription agreement you signed into, which would not allow him to, to get liquid. It would be my guess. I don't know if that answered your question. I've never been asked that one before, so thank you. One more, or and, just, and just we'll a break for lunch. Quick question. Um, I don't know if I'm looking at the right vehicle, but TCRD is the. It looks like it's been on a downward trajectory for five or six years. It, is there something that I'm not understanding about that? Because I see the, the high current yield, which makes sense, but the, yeah. the decline in the, in the price, I'm, I'm trying to, to jive with the um, total return. Yeah, no, it's a good question. So, so TCRD is another publicly traded BDC. If you look at the issue, and this is an example of a, a portfolio of loans in the BDC space that can trade at a discount from NAV to, uh, to uh, um, you know, the stock price, uh, 
that, that vehicle, our vehicle does trade at a discount. Much more of that has to do with a legacy strategy related to taking on too much risk, had some credit issues, that's causing that main gap in, in, in the price versus book. It's, uh, it's not necessarily an overriding theme on the, on the sector itself. It's just uh, some isolated credit issues that existed uh, prior in you know, 2010 to 2014. You should look at that as the exact opposite of what we're trying to create going forward. If you, if you think about our platform in general from a private fundraising standpoint, which is much more akin to what we're designing here, the, the performance has been very, very strong and we've attracted substantial capital. But we have, we, and I can talk about this for way much time, too much time, but there's a lot of factors that go into this. You need to have some form of size because you need to, these funds just can't be too small. If they're too small, you run concentrated. If you run concentrated, you have, you're prone to having credit issues. That vehicle went public at $200 million or $250 million. Most new BDCs today are going public north of a billion. That, that's, that's the right idea. The $200 million idea was the wrong idea, and that's one of the reasons there's been that drag. I don't think you'll see another BDC that goes public at less than a billion to a billion and a half dollars going forward. Anything less than that's in a, in a tough spot. To Diversification if needs the cost of actually running the facility. I mean, it's a, the fees are very high, and and I'm only I've only got a certain asset base to expense those through. So, you know, your cost of admission into the BDC space going forward right now, like I said, is north north of a billion in my opinion. There's a lot of folks that are less than that trying to figure out how to get there. And that um, gets to I think that gets to the point about the worst vehicle for retail investors is also BDCs. It can be the best because of liquidity and because you know, prices are easily discoverable. It can be the worst because there's a lot of differentiation in terms of the quality of the BDCs that are out there. And so that's where retail investors can really get into trouble is not understanding that there's a big difference in terms of credit underwriting standards and the quality of portfolios that are in BDCs. So it's very dangerous to kind of generalize the space. Okay, um, we are well, well over our time over here, and we apologize for that, but uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.